0: Welcome to CityGraceNY.com. Thank you for listening to this message recorded live at City Grace Church. Good morning, everybody. Great to see all of you here and great to be with you this morning. Um, before I dive into the text and the topic for today, I just want to make one special note of a guest that we have with us who's uh, Nathan Hughes. Nathan, just raise your hand. So um, so Nathan's a Canadian from Can- uh, Calgary, Alberta, and uh, he has felt God's placed on his heart a call for many years that he should be in New York doing ministry. So him and I got in touch a, a number of months ago, and I said, hey, you should come out to New York and just explore and see if there are any open doors for ministry. So he came, and so we've spent a lot of time together this week, and he's um, he's thinking about campus ministry. He's um, he's an ordained pastor, works at a college, trained as a counselor. So um, let's just pray a minute for him in his discernment process. Would that be okay? I'm sure you wouldn't mind, right? Yeah. So, so God, we lift up Nathan to you, and we're so thankful that he's here, and um, we just pray your continued blessing on him, and be be with him as he travels back to um, Calgary this afternoon, and we do pray, Lord, that you would reveal your plan and your purpose for him, and um, we thank you that you have placed this burden on his heart, and um, just pray that he'd be faithful in following that, even though he may not know exactly what it looks like yet at this point. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So... um, Nathan's a—he'll tell you more sometime, I'm sure, but he's a believer in dreams. And as I, as we were worshiping, worshiping here earlier, you know, I, I've had a recurring dream, too, over the years. And the dream is that there is a new church starting, and there's familiar people and unfamiliar people, and it's um, a larger group, and I have no control over anything, and things are chaotic. And sometimes— I, I do wonder if maybe the coming together of the two churches is the fulfillment of that dream in some ways, because, you know, as the pastor of City Grace, of course, I, know, I knew all the City Grace people, but then there's all these people kind of from the Grace Faith Circle that I don't know as well, and yet here we are together and um, seeing good things happen. So I, I am encouraged by that. Um, that could be kind of a partial, uh, partial fulfillment of that. So we are in a series in which we are looking at the Apostles' Creed, not to be confused with the Assassin's Creed. For some of you, I told somebody the other day, I was preaching on the uh, Apostles' Creed, and they say, oh, I I think my son has a game that he plays that's called the Apostles' Creed. I'm like, no, that's not the Apostles' Creed. That's not the Assassin's Creed, it's the Apostles' Creed. And so the Creed, of course, is the Um, the oldest kind of shortened summary statement of the Christian faith articulated into just a few short sentences to kind of encapsulate what Christians have believed for 1,600 years and even prior to that. You know, that's really old. Um, If I were to go into your apartment and you were to show me like an antique piece of furniture, you know, I would be really, really impressed if it was, like, two or three hundred years old. I don't know if any of you have any, like, Ming Dynasty, like, antiques in your apartments or something. Like, I would be pretty impressed. But this, this creed, these words, originally, they were written in Latin. These are sixteen, seventeen hundred years old. They're antique, And they've been handed down to us for all these years as a reminder to us of what Christians from way back when lived and died for. So these words are so important and so crucial for setting Christianity apart and distilling in just a few words, you know, what they actually believed and held on to. And the reason creeds were invented and creed is just from the Latin credo, which means I believe, is so that there would be no confusion about where people stood on certain issues. And I think that in the 21st century, like 2019 now, you know, we live in the age of uncertainty, I mean you could go on Google and say Google like what are the chances of me getting cancer and one website will tell you that if you're living in America and you're a Westerner, you know, you got 50... Per, in your lifetime, you have 50% chance of getting cancer. And then you go to a, another website and it's like, no, you have like just a quarter chance of getting cancer. But like, you know, there's just so much information out there and there's so much so many different perspectives. It's so hard to know what to believe sometimes, isn't it? And maybe you have a certain news channel you watch and I have a certain news channel I watch or sources I'm reading. And you know that like they're, they're so biased. And so it's hard to know sometimes... You know, what, what to even believe and who to trust, because it seems like there's a political angle on everything. And so I think that in the age we live in, it's becoming increasingly convenient just to kind of be agnostic about everything. And uh, I think, you know, when I think about agnosticism, I think about my doorman, uh, he grew up in uh, Albania, I don't know if you knew this, secret little fact about New York, but Albanians kind of like have the market on like building management, so, <laughs> so my building is like all these Albanians, you would never know, but then like when they chat together, they're, they're speaking in Albanian, but, you know, so he grew up in Albania, which of course was a formerly communist country, and... F- from, in Albania, it's, uh, it's official, the official religion is secularism, so they, there's no official belief in God. And so, but the thing is, he's a really nice guy, and so what he says is, well, I'm just agnostic. I don't know. And he says this to me all the time whenever we talk about it. I just don't know. He's like, I'm not saying there is no God. I'm not saying you're wrong. I'm just saying I, I don't know, and I don't think we can know, all right? And so that seems to be the general I think flavor of our culture right now is people are just kind of agnostic about everything. But I think that's really really dangerous. For us to be getting um, to be on this path of losing strong convictions. And maybe in our culture it kind of we're we're fed this information and fed this uh, ideal, which is that if we're all going to get along together in a pluralistic society, we all have to like kind of keep our opinions to ourselves and just basically be unsure about everything. But you know, it's, it's MLK weekend, right? And we're remembering on Monday the, the incredible sacrifices and fearless leaders of the civil rights movement. Martin Luther King Jr. did not do what he did, you know, without a rock solid conviction. In the equal value of all human life, that he was not agnostic about human life. He was not ag- agnostic about whether or not segregation was okay, or whether racism was something that we should just kind of turn a blind eye to. Which is interesting because there were many African Americans themselves who said to MLK, "You're causing more problems than you're than you're fixing." And like, yeah, what maybe what you say is true, but let's just like leave the status quo alone and not try to mess with things. But based on the the strength of his convictions and his belief, not agnosticism, but firm conviction, it was out of that that he led the civil rights movement. Firm, unwavering commitment and belief in certain ideas, right? And what about the Holocaust? And so many people, so many even good people and Catholics and and all kinds of people around the world kind of turning a blind eye to what the atrocities that were happening instead of people speaking out on the basis of firm convictions. So I think that if we get into a place in life where we're just kind of agnostic about everything, there's a real danger. And MLK said, you know, I refuse to accept the view that mankind is so tragically bound to the starless midnight of racism and war That bright daylight of peace and brotherhood can never become a reality. I believe that unarmed truth and unconditional love will have the final word. That is a man with convictions and beliefs. And so the creed, I think, as we're going through it today... You know, we're going through it little by little. Yesterday, last week, who is God? This week, we're introduced to Christ Jesus, the, the only, His only Son, our Lord. So we're going through, we're saying, what do Christians believe? What have Christians believed for centuries? What have they staked their life on? What have they been willing to die for, to live and die for? And then ask the question, do I believe that? Where do you stand? Because this is something that we can't afford to be agnostic about it. The, the, the Bible doesn't introduce us to a Savior and say, well, this is a good role model. This is a good teacher. He's got good principles. He's got good philosophy. He says, no, this is your Lord. This is your Lord. And that is the declarative statement that impacts your life and impacts how you live and how you are in the world. So so today what we're doing is we're saying when I say I believe in Jesus Christ his only son our lord what exactly are we saying like what does that what does that really mean and before even getting into this I just want to you know I just want to 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 say very briefly that while conviction is important what what I don't what we're not saying here today is that there is not room for doubt And I think this is one of the the, the biggest mistakes, especially young people. Maybe you experienced a lot of hardship in church growing up because if you expressed any kind of doubt, there simply wasn't room for that. And so I, I actually would say that you can have strong convictions and you can have faith and you can have belief and still struggle with doubt. Having doubt at times does not mean that you are not a Christian. Having doubt does not mean that you do not believe in Jesus. Doubt is not the opposite of faith. And I think we have to be really clear about that, and we to we got to be kind to each other, and we have to be understanding that people do at times, throughout their lives, wrestle with faith, and faith, I'm sorry, wrestle with doubt. Doubt is not the opposite of faith. You know what the opposite of faith is? Is idolatry, right? Because faith is about putting your eggs in the Jesus basket, whereas idolatry is saying, I'm going to look to my money, and I'm going to look to my career, and I'm going to look to my reputation to be where I find salvation. So the opposite of faith is idolatry. There is room for doubt. There is room for doubt. There's room for doubting people. And so that's part of the the reason that we are in community together is to encourage each other and and to be understanding towards each other. You know, I, I went through uh, huge, huge times of doubt in my life, especially in college. When I first took my philosophy classes and, and psychology, and I was at a Christian college too, by the way. But man, all that stuff really, maybe that's not saying much about the Christian college I went to, but, <laughs> but you know, it was a good college. But I tell you, because like, you know, your world is expanding and you're learning new ideas. And I, you know, I, I had grown up as a Christian, and so I was, challenging, I was questioning, do I really believe these things? Do they really hold water? And and I had a professor, he was so gentle and so kind, and he said, listen, it's okay to doubt, it's okay to question, but make sure that as you do so, that you don't step outside the circle of faith and start, start hammering it and, and doubting it and, and being cynical towards it from an outsider's perspective, but do so from within faith. There's room within the church to question And to ask, and to see, does this faith really make sense? Does this faith hold up? And I'll tell you for myself, you know, the various seasons of doubt that I've been through, they've been hard, but I don't struggle with doubt as much anymore. And the reason was I hung in there, and now as I look back, it's not just things that I learned and things that I was taught, but it's experiences of God that I've had in my own life. And I've been walking with God for so long and seen the ups and downs and see how he's taken my wife and my family through really complicated and difficult times. And he's shown up for us in incredible ways. He's answered prayers in ways that I simply didn't expect. And so like I believe now, not because I was just told about Jesus, because I've been walking with Jesus. And so if you are a person who is doubting, I'd say, listen, See this creed, see this conviction as something to work towards. Because the people that wrote this, they didn't act like it was gray. They acted like it was black and white. Maybe for you, there's still some gray. Hang in there. See the creed as something to be moving towards. Keep walking with God. Keep walking with Jesus. Keep trusting and see if he doesn't show up in your life. And I guarantee that with time, your faith, your faith your, your doubts will, will cease. They, they'll, they'll lose power. Tim Keller said something great. He said, doubt your doubts. Every time you have a doubt, there's an alternative belief that's creeping in. And so you have to say, okay, I'm having these doubts. But where do they come from? What's really the source of these doubts? Because sometimes I think that, that we get so discouraged when we have doubts. And we think that, that the, the presence of doubt is itself evidence that maybe these things are not true, but that is not the case, okay? The fact that you have doubt is not evidence of why your doubts might be true. There's other reasons we have doubt. Of course, the enemy is always trying to sow seeds of doubt in us, so you got to doubt your doubts and, and come back to faith and trust, and even if you have some uncertainty, keep moving forward. That was all preamble. I'm going off the script. I apologize. So three things about what this creed means. When I say, when we, when the church, when the church proclaims, I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, what exactly do we mean when we say that? Number one, it is a statement of fact. It, it means, when we make this proclamation, we're locating our faith, the object of our faith, the object of our hope and belief, on an actual person, Jesus Christ of Nazareth, who was real, who exists, who is alive, who was born. Let me just give you a synopsis of Jesus. So what we're saying is, this is real. This is legit. It is, when we make the creedal affirmation in Jesus, we're saying that this is as true and as real as the chair you're sitting on. That as, as real as it is that I'm standing before you right now, Okay, do we all affirm that I am a real person, that I am right here right now, that you are right here, you would all say yes. So the creed then is, a, is an affirmation that we actually, the church, actually believes that Jesus is real and that who the scripture says he is is, is legitimate. That, that this is not some figment of our imagination. He's a real per, he is a real person. He existed. So, Jesus was a Palestinian Jew. He was born in Bethlehem under the shadow of the Roman Empire. He was born to two Jewish parents. His father, Joseph, was a Jewish carpenter. He grew up as a practicing Jewish person in the first century he was taught he was went to synagogue probably every week growing up in the jewish countryside he learned the torah and then at the age of 30 he began a public ministry and he began teaching the people he was a rabbi in the jewish countryside in the in the in the, in the countryside of of Judea, and he taught people about the kingdom of God. The, the main focus and teaching of Jesus was the kingdom of God, and he said that this kingdom was a new reality that God was bringing into the world. and He said it's close, it's nearby, and he said incredible things. He said that just by faith and repentance alone, that you, even average, undeserving people, maybe you are, you know, you're a societal outcast or you're very low on the on the st- the, the, the stratum of, uh, of religious, the religious stratum. Some people thought, like the Pharisees thought they were important and they were so righteous. But he says, you even tax collectors and prostitutes, you people that you think that God would never love you, would never care about you. He said God is for you. He said the, the kingdom is for the, the, the last. He said the last shall be first and the first shall be last. So he's proclaiming this kingdom. And then Jesus begins to demonstrate this kingdom. He said that the reign of God is breaking into the world. And then not only only does he teach about it, but everybody recognizes that this Jesus speaks with a kind of authority, and that when he speaks, it's like he really knows what he's talking about. He has a conviction, and there's something real behind Jesus, because then not only does he talk about it, but then he begins to demonstrate it. And so as this kingdom is coming with Jesus, who proclaims that he himself is the king, what does he do? He casts out demons. He forgives sins. He heals people. And of course, the religious establishment of the time, the Pharisees and the, ta- the uh, Pharisees and the priests, the teachers of the law, they are so threatened by Jesus because Jesus is becoming so radically popular and so he's threatening their power base and so the, the religious establishment decides we gotta kill this guy, he's no good, he's no good for Judaism, he's no good for, he's making us look really bad and so they begin to plot to kill him. Jesus claims to be the son of God. The scripture says that, that Jesus is the full presence and manifestation of of God in this world. And Jesus does not allow the people to crown him king because he says, you know, my kingdom is not of this world. And so Jesus is the leader of this movement, and that is exactly what he's doing. He's gathering followers, but he doesn't want to be crowned king because he's like, I'm not here to be king of Israel, right? I'm the king of the universe, and I'm training you to be my followers and to be subjects, and I'm empowering you to do this. And of course, the, the teachers of the law, they come up with a plan to kill him, and they think that by killing him. they'll end the Jesus movement once and for all. Little do they know that this is actually part of Jesus's master plan. And that though, when they crucify, so they convince the Roman authorities that Jesus is a bad guy. We need to get rid of him. This is bad for Rome. This is bad for Israel. We need to, you know, we need to do away with Jesus. So they convince the Roman authorities, Pilate. And this is actually part of the Apostles' Creed as well. So Pilate, you know, goes along with it, and he, he says, okay, fine, you can crucify him. So the religious leaders are super glad, finally, we'll c- we kill this Jesus guy. And yet, in a, in a grand twist of irony... Jesus uses his death as the means to bring about the sacrifice for sins for all his people. He is the innocent lamb who's brought to the slaughter. He's crucified on the cross. His death becomes the way that the the world receives life. Three days later, he rises from the dead spectacularly thereby showing and confirming beyond a shadow of a doubt the reality of his kingdom. So he says this is a new and eternal kingdom. And just like our passage says, he's the firstborn from the dead. The resurrection of Jesus is the final inauguration of this new kingdom that he has brought about. And it's undeniable. Why? Because not even death could keep its hold on Jesus. Can I get an amen? Amen. (laughs) So Jesus goes and he shows himself to to everybody. I'm alive. This kingdom is for real. He continues to teach about the kingdom. And then he says, I'm going to leave, but I want you to wait. Because after I leave, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit. And then you, my disciples and followers, are going to be filled with the Spirit. And you're going to be empowered. And you're going to be my witnesses in the whole world. And you're going to tell everybody the good news about this kingdom, which now you know it's for real. And nothing can stop it. And we vanquish the power of the enemy, even death. So then Jesus ascends. He disappears. And they see him go into heaven, and then at Pentecost he sends his Holy Spirit, they're filled with boldness, and then we read in Acts about how the disciples begin to go out into the whole world doing exactly the same things that Jesus did, casting out demons, proclaiming the gospel, proclaiming the forgiveness of sins for all people, healing the sick, the church is born, and the rest is history. And that's what we're living in now. So listen, that's the first part of the apostles' creed is to say this is legit. This is real that we actually, actually believe this. We're saying the gospel accounts of Christ are true. And that even though this was a long time ago, even though it was thousands of years ago, that it is as real as you and I sitting here today. And so when we celebrate communion and we have the bread and the cup, that, the whole purpose of that is to be that reminder that as real as this bread and this cup which we take is a reminder of the reality of what has happened Colossians 1.15 says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. So the church's affirmation of this creed is, it means that this is not a metaphor. Like, when we talk about Jesus, this is not a metaphor. We tell people about it, and maybe people will say, well, that's true for you, but it's not really true for me. The church Absolutely, unequivocally, disagrees with that statement. Just to be totally clear, no, that is not that is not the case. This is not on the level of something that oh, it's true for me. Maybe it's not true for you. But now listen, I'm not suggesting that because the church has strong convictions, we have, should have strong convictions. That does not mean we thereby judge people for not being on the same page as us. And I do think that the culture does have some wisdom in suggesting, because what the culture hates is anybody imposing their, their beliefs on other people, right? You hear that a lot. just You can believe what you want, but don't, don't impose your beliefs on me. Our, the church having strong convictions does not mean that we impose our beliefs on other people. And Christ was very, very clear. The teachings of the master himself, he said, do not judge other people. So I just want to put that out there. That, that we don't judge people who don't agree, don't agree with us. We don't look down on them. And, and we certainly do not impose our beliefs on anybody else. It's not what the church is called to do. However, the, the affirmation of the creed should at least be a reminder to the church that while people may think that this is a personal opinion that we have, that in reality, what the church really holds to is, is not, well, this is just quote-unquote true for me. So I want that to be totally clear, okay? So we're saying this is this is absolutely 100% true. This is reality. Now, I was praying about this message, and I was thinking about the creed and what it says, and it occurred to me that it is one thing for the church to have a creedal affirmation and say, yeah, we believe this. We believe it's true. We believe what the creed says about who Jesus is, and that salvation is, is in him. But the thing is, you can't have A relationship with a creed. And God does not want us, I I don't believe, right, God says, I want these people to know about me, and I want them to affirm truths about me as if it's like book knowledge or head knowledge. And so the creed then, I think, challenges us to wrestle with the reality that this person that we believe in is alive. See, we may think that, like, MLK was a great man. But the thing is, nobody would say now, I believe in MLK. Because MLK has passed away. He's not here anymore. But what is the language of the Scripture, of the Creed? It doesn't say, I believed in Jesus, or I believe Jesus was who he says he is. It says, I believe in Jesus, i.e., I believe in him right now. I believe that he is a present reality. And so the challenge, I think, and this is, what, this is what I really want to put before you today, is that the creed is not just, it, it's not just an encouragement to, like, understand things about God. It's like we've been raised with these things. We've been taught with these things. We can read these things in the Bible. But the creed is a challenge to personally embrace Jesus as Lord for yourself. And so question that the creed challenges us to wrestle is not just what do you believe about Jesus, but who is Jesus to you? Who is Jesus to you right now? Is Jesus a present reality in your life? Because Jesus is alive. And I'm convinced that the entire point of the Gospels is that God, who created the world, that was part one last week, entered into the world in the fullness of human form in order that he could know us and be known. And if that is the case, it is not enough for you to simply say, I believe these things, but rather God is saying, I want you to know these things personally. I want you to have a trusting relationship with the Jesus of the creed. That ultimately is where we need to go. That is the challenge. Now, you know, I grew up um, in the Reformed denomination, and I remember I went to Christian schools growing up, and I remember that for a long time that I found the language of relationship in relation to God to be something that I could not wrap my mind around. So, you know, you hear kind of an evangelical circle as well. Jesus died on the cross for you so you could have a relationship with God. But I'm like, hmm, a relationship with God? Like, yeah, I respect God. Yeah, I honor God. Yeah, I know God is the creator. But uh, the idea of relationship with God didn't actually really make any sense to me. And interesting, I don't, I, don't think, I don't think I'm alone in that, because, because I, went to professor, I went to seminary, and I had a professor, see, first you're going to, I'm dissing on my college, now I'm dissing on my seminary. This is bad. This is very bad. But I had a professor who said, he pointed out very clearly, there is no verse in the Bible that says you can have a relationship with God. Did you know that? Evangelicals say it a lot, but the Bible doesn't actually say you can have a relationship. There's no verse that says that. And yet, it seems to be the case that evangelical Christianity, since like the, the 60s and 70s, that that's been the whole point, was that you can have a relationship with God. I want to go on record here today saying that, in fact, you can't have a relationship with God. You can. Why? Deep sigh of relief. <laughs> Deep sigh. We absolutely can have a relationship with God. And that is why God came into the world, was so that we could have a relationship with him. That is why we have a high priest who's able to empathize with us. That's why God takes on human flesh. And what does John say? He says that he, he, he made his dwelling among us, literally... Uh, Eskane in Greek. He pitched his tent with us. Why? So people could see him and talk with him. Right? We believe in Jesus. He's not, we believed in Jesus, that he's a present reality. He wants to be in your life. And so I challenge you to ask yourself this question. To what extent am I engaged with Jesus in my actual day-to-day life? Because that's what the creed, forget the creed. Like, the creed points to a reality. The reality is about knowing Jesus in your day-to-day. Listen, relationship, Think about what happened, right? I'm sure many of you know the story. When Jesus Christ was on the cross, something, and he died, something very, very interesting happened. That back in the temple, there was a curtain that separated the most holy place from the rest of the temple. What happened to that curtain? You know, the curtain was torn in two. Do you know what the curtain symbolized? In the Old Testament, the curtain guarded the Holy of Holies, And in the Old Testament, the Holy of Holies was the place where the very presence of God on the Ark of the Covenant, you had two angels that were facing each other. And God, when he was commanding uh, Moses to make the, um, the, the Ark and the seat and the angels and the whole tabernacle surrounding it, he said, I will meet you there. I will talk to you face to face right there at the Ark. But Moses was the only person who could go in there. It was so holy. The presence of God was so holy, so inaccessible to sinful people that no one else could be able to come in there except the high priest and only once a year. When Jesus Christ dies on the cross for our sins and the curtain temple is torn in two, what does that mean? It means you can have a relationship with God. Right. It means the place of the deepest connection and intimacy with God, which prior to the death of Christ had been completely walled off from everybody else, has been torn open, and now you and I can boldly, as the sons and daughters of God, delve right in. That is the whole point. So I wish I had told that to my seminary professor, but I was still a young, I was still a spring chicken back in that day. So I didn't have the courage, but I should go back to him now and say, well, the Bible doesn't say relationship, but the Bible says the, court, the, tur- the curtain's torn in two and we can have intimacy in the Holy of Holies. I'd call that a relationship. So, but what kind of relationship are we, what kind of relationship are we talking about? It is a, it is a relationship of trust. Relationship implies there is a give and take. So many people in the church have a, such a static understanding of God who is this large, powerful, far-off deity that you once in a while, you send up prayers like little arrows and it just goes, bing, and, and, and drops off. And God, God is this immovable, large, inanimate object. He's powerful, yes, but like you can't really have a relationship with him because there's like no back and forth. But, but see, my friends... I don't have that many. I have all of you, but my, my real friends, <laughs> when, I, when I text them, they text me right back, right? My real friends argue with me. And my real friends give me crap sometimes. And my real friends, I can stick it to them sometimes. And my real friends will we'll go on, We'll hang out once in a while. See, like friendship in, involves a kind of like you do something, and there's a response. That's friends. That's a friendship, right? you know, calling some, you know, you don't have a relationship with like Apple, you call them and there, there's the, you know, or your, or your electric company, there's like, there's nothing there. You, you send emails and you don't get anything back. Like, that's not a relationship. But, <laughs> you know, with God, there, there is a give and there's a take and there's a back and there's a forth. But do you know that back and forth in your daily life? Do you have a relationship with God? Does he, do, do you talk with him? you communicate with God? Does he talk back to you? That's the essence of relationship, and these things are real, and that's what the creed affirms. You can know this God. You can walk with this God. You can engage. God wants to be engaged. He doesn't want to be this theology getting, collecting dust on a shelf. He doesn't want to be this 1,600-year-old creed that doesn't actually impact your daily life. He wants to be a daily reality, and that, my friends, is what it means to be a Christian, is that you're doing life in God's presence and that God is a, a, he's real for you personally. Personally, you talk. He leads you. And, and the substance of this relationship most, you know, to put it, I think, in, in, in its most essential, the most essential dynamic of this relationship is the trust. It, this is what belief is all about, is about trust, is about dependence, so we go, you Google search or do a concordance search of belief. The first time that word shows up in the Bible is when God is talking to, Mo, to Abraham. And Abraham is very old, older than anybody in this room. And he has no children. And God says, I want you to come follow me. And then he tells him to look up at the night sky. And he says, Abraham, you see the stars in the sky? You have no kids right now, Abraham, but I'm going to make you into such a great nation that your descendants are going to be like the stars in the sky. The very first time that we see that word belief in the Bible is when God looks back up at God and says, I believe what you're saying, right? So what is belief really, right? It's not just about affirming a creed. There's part of it. There is content, right? It is true. That was point number one. But point number two, it is a willingness to step out in faith and to do the impossible as you follow God. And so a question that I think we all need to ask ourselves is where is God bringing you in your life that requires your cooperation to do something that you can't do on your own? Where is God bringing you that requires risk, stepping into the impossible as you rely on him? This is the life of faith. It is not just about going going about your daily business, doing your thing, brushing your teeth, going to work. That's That's not faith, right? Faith is fundamentally about something you can't see and you can't control. And every single one of us is called into faith. We're called into a relationship of dependence and trust and so somebody said faith is spelled R-A-S-C-K. I think, I, I think that there's truth to that. Faith is about stepping into an impossible and doing what, God, what, God, what, what you believe God is calling you to do that you cannot do on your own. And I believe that this is, something, this is why you need God every single, every single day, every single moment in your life. Why? Because he's asking us to do the impossible. He wants to do the impossible through us. He wants to manifest his kingdom in your work, in your relationships. He wants to transform your life. He wants you to be a part of heaven now in this world. He wants to give you eternal life. Like, There's nothing that he calls us to do that we actually have the power to do in and of ourselves. So the the trust that he invites us into is the trust of saying, I can't see it. I don't know how it's going to pan out. I don't see, Lord, how it's possible that given that I'm 90 years old and I have no kids, that my descendants are going to be as numerous as the stars. But I will believe you belief is always practical. It always means that you're going somewhere. So trust means that you are following God step by step, day by day, as he takes you from where you are now to where he wants you to be. That is ultimately what the creed is pointing us to. A real relationship, day by day engagement. And so are you engaging God in your daily life? Are you looking to God in your daily life? Are you praying about what, it, what? God called Abraham. He called Moses. He called Nehemiah. Jesus called his disciples. He's called you, but where is he taking you? He wants to take you somewhere. And that faith is, I don't know where I'm going, but I'm re- I'm, like a child, I'm, I'm willing to hold out my hand, grab a hold, and take a step in the right direction, knowing that he's with me, that he'll take care of me, and that he's going to provide for me along the way. That is faith. That is faith. Trusting relationship. Final point, that when in the creed we say, it's not just a fact, it's not just a relationship, we say, I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord. What does that our Lord part mean? Lord is a word that is you know, we're American, not British, so we don't have lords and ladies and stuff like that. So probably the last time you heard that word lord was like in Downton Abbey or maybe Game of Thrones. They talk about lords and ladies then. And, you know, so that the idea with lord there sometimes, you know, obviously it has to do with a status difference, right? Like if somebody is your lord, like obviously... They're of a higher status than you, and you are of a lowlier status. But what, maybe there's something more there. So we go back to the first century, and we think about that word Lord used in its original context. What exactly are we talking about? Well, the Lord was, was a protector, was a provider. The, the Lord was someone who ruled the house. And So maybe if you were a servant in a house, or you're a, a son or, or a daughter in the house, the, the Lord is the, the one who rules the estate. Uh, he, he is the one who establishes peace and order. He's the one that guards the life of the estate. And so it's interesting when you th- understand Lord in that sense, that did you know that in the first century, the gospel message that was popular in the Roman Empire was what? Caesar is Lord. That's what people believe, that he's Lord. He's the ruler of the estate. He's the one that guards our peace. He's the one that provides for us. That was what was meant when it says Caesar's Lord. He is the one who has established Irene, Greek for peace, and flourishing in our land. He is the one that we look to to provide us everything that we need. And yet, what was the creed? The earliest creed, the earliest articulation of the gospel that the apostles claimed and that they were willing to die for, and which they did die for, was Jesus is Lord, not Caesar. They said Jesus is Lord. Jesus is the one who rules the kingdom. He's ascended on high. All power, and authority has been given to him. He's the one that rules this word. He is the one that truly establishes peace. He's the one that is the source of life that we need to look to. He's the one that has given his life for us, and therefore we belong to him because we were dead in our sins and transgressions, but he died on a cross for us. He redeemed us from slavery. If he's paid for us, we belong to him. And he loves us. He is not a cruel master, but he is a master who, is, who loves us so much he was willing to give his life for us. So therefore... It all belongs to him. Our lives belong to him. Our material possessions belong to him. Our our, our days, our minutes, they all belong to him. It's all God's. It's all for him. That's what they meant when they said that. He is the one who rules this world. He is the one who meets our needs. He is the one who establishes peace and justice in the world. He is the one who owns all things. He is the one who gave us life. And so this... Creed, the Apostles' Creed, is never, ever something to just say glibly or to say it from rote memorization without actually thinking about the meaning of what you're saying. Because when you say, Jesus is my Lord, what you're really saying is that my life belongs to Him and that I find my life and I am better off when I live not for myself not to do what I want to do, but when I am literally... This day, this minute, following God's plan for me, it's all his. That, that is what you're saying. So we're going we're gonna to close now. And, and I just um, will pray and, and just ask for God to renew that sense of conviction. And again, if you are somebody who you're struggling in your faith, you're struggling with doubt, hang in there. Just continue pressing forward. There is room for you but God calls for obedience and forward momentum even when you're not exactly sure where it's going to get where it's going to end up one day at a time and as they say more shall be revealed and even though you don't have all the answers now as you move forward in faith as it has in my life and I've seen it in many others too it begins to make more sense and become more clear somebody said Chris Larson, the future belongs to Christians of conviction. We live in an agnostic world, and we need the church to not be ashamed to stand up for what it believes. The church will not get anywhere and will not have any kind of impact in this world if we are second-guessing everything. And if we're like, yeah, that's just what I believe, but don't worry about me. Like We need to be bold. The church needs to step into boldness into conviction, and it is as we boldly go forward, and boldly obey, and boldly go on mission, that is when we will see the kingdom of God manifested in this world. So let's pray, God, Lord, we we know that you are above all things, and that you are real. Uh, maybe not all of us sense that, Lord, but but that is the creed of the church. That is what the church has taught. And that is what so many thousands of people and hundreds of generations of Christians have held to this belief. So Lord, today we're inspired by this. We're inspired by this creed, this 1,600-year-old document where the Christians are articulating what they believe so that we, so many years later, could remember, we could look back and see, wow, this is the creed, this is the belief that has been handed down from generation to generation so that we today could have clarity and could have conviction in our own hearts that this is for real this is legitimate and so i pray lord that today that there would be just an outpouring of faith as if we have heard the gospel we have heard what you are about may we if we're struggling with doubt if we're struggling with uncertainty would we be able to willing like like Abraham, to take that step today and say, I cannot understand how this could possibly be, but I'm going to trust you, and I'm going to leave my home, and I'm going to follow, and I'm going to go where you want me to go. So Lord, may there just be an outpouring of faith today. You are Lord. You are King. You are the Messiah. You are the Son of God, O Jesus. And so we worship you. We proclaim. This is the message of the church, the proclamation of the church. Jesus is Lord. And would you be the Lord of our lives, Lord? Would you lead us day by day. Help us to step away from a formalism and a traditionalism that that doesn't actually engage with you, Lord. But may we understand and know in our hearts that you are a daily present reality for each one of us. And may we invite you into every corner of our life. And because, Lord, our lives are not our own. We belong to you. Our lives belong to you. You are Lord. And so may your will be done in our lives, not our own. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.